All right, if you take your Bibles this afternoon, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans, the fifth chapter. And this afternoon, we want to look at verses 12 through 21, Romans chapter 5, from ruin to redemption. Now, I think every person is an individual. Now, is that profound or what? Say, Pastor, that's an amazing statement. Of course, every person's an individual, right? Yes, but every person is also a member of the human race, right? Uh, no one is exactly alike, not even twins, triplets, quadruplets, or whatever, how many lets you want to have there. Uh, there's no two people who are going to be exactly the same. Everybody's going to be different. Even the person that's somewhere in the world is your double, you know, <laughs> someone that looks just like you. Uh, each person needs freedom to express themselves and to make their own contribution, and yet each person also lives in a close relationship with others. Uh, each one of us have a separate body. We have our own thoughts. We have make our own decisions, but we cannot forget that we're part of a family, a community, a country, a, a world. It was John Dunn who wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were there, as well as if a manner of man's of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. You all remember that from your literature classes, right? English literature. Well, the Bible recognizes the autonomy of an individual, but also that each is a part of the human race. It was Ezekiel who wrote of the importance of the individual responsibility. He denounced the use of a proverb in Israel. Ezekiel 18 verse 2 says, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, there were those who were blaming God for injustice, and their national difficulties were judgment because of their forefathers' sins. Ezekiel rebuked them. He went on in verse 4 to say, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Each person, each individual is responsible to God for our own conduct. And yet we're a part of the human race. And the sins of parents often have an effect on succeeding generations. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so it is not the teaching that God holds children respons responsible for, uh, 
uh, or is it not the teaching us that God holds children responsible for the deeds of parents, but because of parents' sins often comes some negative results? And the world is full of problems that we did not cause. The idea of being a part of the human race and the responsibilities that go with it also recognizes the representation principle. Now, we all know what the representation principle is, don't we? Now, I'm going from English class to history class or government class now, okay? United States, we have a representative Congress. Men and women act for us as individual citizens. We cannot go... Uh, all go to Washington, although we'd probably like to go to Washington, straighten them out, get them by the shoulders and shake them a little bit. But we can't do that. We can't all go and decide on the laws. So we elect representatives to go for us, and they're supposed to represent us. Now, whether they do or not, that's another question, but that's the way our government is set up. But here in Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21, we have three ideas that are crucial to our understanding of this particular text. One is individual responsibility, the commonality of the human race, and the representation principle. You see, Paul speaks of two representatives. One is Adam and the other is Christ. The first fell, and his evil deed brought sin and death to the whole human race. The second lived a perfect life, and he died a death he did not deserve. He brought salvation and life to all who will believe. Now that is by faith. So we notice the importance of these two representatives this afternoon. The first Adam, we speak of ruination. Ruination. Human wickedness and physical death are undeniable. Apart from the Bible, there is no logical explanation or purpose. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world... But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. We notice, first of all, the origin of sin and death. In the first three chapters of the Bible, it declares here that that man disobeyed God. Now, when we come to Romans here and Paul's view of the account of Adam and his fall, uh, we have an explanation for the universality of sin and death. Every person is not an imitation of Adam. Rather, all men are guilty and totally depraved because of their relationship to him. Someone might ask, well, pastor, are you, do you believe in total depravity of man? Uh, you must be a Calvinist. Uh, no, I'm not a Calvinist any more than I'm a Flemingist. When John Calvin spoke of the total depravity, you know what he meant? He meant total inability. He taught that man has no ability to choose to be saved. That's not what my Bible says. 
He taught that man has no ability to come to Christ unless God empowers him and God gives him the ability. But you, we really don't want to get off on a discussion of Calvinism. But I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not an Arminian. I'm a Biblicist. Basically, the Bible teaches us that all mankind is evil to the core, and there is no good in them. Now, we've already looked at that in Romans chapter 3, have we not? Romans 3, 10 through 12. There's none good, no, not one. And every individual has a responsibility before God concerning his sinful nature. Now, if you notice here in this uh, verse 12 here, the word world. Find it several places. The word world is the word for cosmos. It speaks of the human race. It's the same word used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's not talking about the physical earth itself. He's talking about the world of sinners. And where did this sin come from? From a perfect beginning to a pitiful failure. The study of sin's effects on human race is a study of tragedy and death. We notice that sin had its origins in the heart of Lucifer. You go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 14 and verses 12 through 15 there. We won't take time to go back there, but Lucifer was not content to be the anointed cherub that covereth. Ezekiel chapter 28 says he sinned against the Lord, and at that point his sin did had no effect on humanity, but it had its origins in the heart of Lucifer. Sin entered the human race through Adam. Adam had been created in the image, very image of God, and he had been placed in a perfect environment with a perfect companion. Uh, he was the master of a perfect world. There was only one restriction. He was forbidden to eat of the fruit of one tree in the Garden of Eden. And the penalty for eating of that tree was death. And you would think Adam would be content to live in a perfect paradise, but the Bible tells us that Adam broke one law that had been given by God, and that brought sin into this world. Now, had we been standing there the day uh, that day watching Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit, uh, we would not have heard any explosions. There would have, wouldn't have been any bells that went off or whistles that sounded. And yet, at that instant in time, humanity died. And the fallout from that moment of disobedience has been c- catastrophic for the human family. Sin had its origins in the heart of Lucifer. Sin entered the human race through Adam. And thirdly, sin of Adam's uh, is called the fall. Adam's fall did just not affect Adam, but affected the whole world. We see back here that sin entered the world. Verse 12, as by one man, sin entered into the world. There's no way to explain the world apart from the fall. There's only one way to explain things like murder and abortion and theft and racism and hatred and fornication and adultery and idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. There's only one way to explain that. By one man, sin entered into the world. How do you explain a mother who would kill her own children? How do you explain a legal slaughterhouse where abortions are performed for profit? 
How do you explain homosexuality? How do you explain any of the millions of crimes that are committed against humanity? There's only one explanation. By one man, sin entered into the world. And then fourthly, all sin and its results can be traced to back to one moment in time. All back to when Adam, the first man, sinned against God. Adam's transgression was how paradise was ruined. The question is often asked, why should the whole human race be guilty for the sin of one man? Well, the answer is threefold. Adam was the first man. We trace our lineage back to him. In fact, he was the representative man. And what happened to Adam happened to all of us. In the eyes of God, Adam was given the authority to act for the entire human race. And then when Adam sinned, as it says here, all sinned. When Adam fell, he passed his sinful condition down to every human that has ever been born. His sin tainted the bloodstream of all humanity. Every human being born into this world is carrying the virus of sin and death. We're all diseased. Think of it this way. Adam was driving the bus of humanity, and when he drove the bus off the cliff, we went with him. When Adam disobeyed, you disobeyed. When Adam fell, you fell. One fellow has said that when Adam fell, everyone bruised their knees. I think the problem is much more serious than that. When Adam sinned, we all died spiritually. We just didn't bruise our knees. And then thirdly, sin for death, or death for sin, is the penalty for all mankind. The results of sin can be summed up with one horrible word, and that is the word death. When men sin, they are doomed to die. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Paul is trying to tell us here in these verses is that death entered into this world because man broke the specific laws and commandments of God, but death entered into the world through sin. Even those here, according as it says in verse 13, who are not guilty of any a particular violation of God's law because the law had not been given yet. The law hadn't been given, but they still died. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 5, you'll find enough uh, there to convince us of the terrible results of sin in the human family. You'll notice again in, in, in Genesis chapter 5 the repetition of one phrase, and he died, and he died. Just over and over and over again. And he died. And that says it all. The result of sin is always death. James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's the origin and the sin of death. Or sin and death. So we come then to the reigning power of death. Here in verse 14 of Romans 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death is like a powerful tyrant. Here it's not speaking of extinction, but rather separation. Not just that man's heart stops beating, but spiritual separation. It's an invisible alienation from God because of sin. Death is so certain that there are industries that are built around the truth that you will die. You realize that? 
People are making money off the fact that they know we're going to die. Think about the mortuary. Don't think about it. You'll get upset. Think about life insurance. They, they're counting on you dying. They exist because people die. Death is as certain as life. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And sadly, many do not understand that death is more than just laying down the body. In truth, sin produces three kinds of death in humans. Three particular kinds of death. First of all, there's spiritual death. It's a natural state of all humanity as they are born into this world. Spiritual death is in reality being separated from God. Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 4.18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So there's spiritual death. Secondly, there's physical death. And this is the place all humans come to when these temporal earthly bodies are laid aside. Remember reading an old time Baptist preacher, R.G. Lee. He said, all go from this earth. Every cemetery tells that truth. Every tombstone authenticates that statement. Every unmarked grave the world over says so. The sober truth the hospital cot declares, even as does every hearse and every funeral march, obituary and epitaph. Another great Baptist preacher, this one I had the privilege of knowing, Dr. Monroe Parker, he said death, and I wish I could say it like he did with his lisp, but death puts his cold finger on the doctor who must write his last prescription Lie down and die. The driver must leave his truck on the highway, his cargo undelivered, and give his brawn and his stalwart fame frame to the embalmer's life, knife. <clears throat> the carpenter must put down his hammer and saw and change his overalls for a shroud. Dr. Parkin had a way with words. And you can be sure that you too have an appointment with death. And we don't know when it's going to be. Could be any minute, could be any, any, any time, any moment. The book of Job says, Is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth, a time when God takes thee away from his stroke, with his stroke? I read years ago a little Moravian village. There was that the Gestapo had invaded the home of a doctor who inquired. Uh, to inquire about his son who escaped a detention camp. And they became interested in a wonderful collection of over 500 clocks, which the good doctor had assembled. Unable to find the escapee, they informed the old man they were going to confiscate his clocks and take them to Berlin. So they ordered him to have them ready when they returned that evening. And as they threatened... They did return. 
And at midnight, the little village was shaken by a terrific explosion. It was later found that the doctor had attached a bomb to one of the clocks and set it to explode at the strike of 12. Nothing was left of the place but rubble. All seven of the men, including the doctor, were dead. And when officials scraped through the debris, they found the face of one old grandfather clock undestroyed. And on it were described these prophetic words, The hour strikes but once for all men. See, God's warnings are, 2 Samuel 14, 14, For we must needs die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Job 30, verse 23, for I know that thou wilt bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. So there's spiritual death, there's physical death, and then thirdly, there is eternal death. This is also called the second death. Refers not only to eternal separation from the presence of God, but also of eternal torment in the lake of fire. It's the ultimate doom of every person who is not saved by the grace of God. Every lost person here needs to understand that they are spiritually dead. And one day they will die physically and will spend eternity enduring the second death. Saved people need to know that we've already passed from death into life. We might have to pass through physical death when we lay our bodies down, but... We don't have to experience eternal death. Romans 5 establishes that those who lived before the Mosaic law were estranged from God and they died. That's what it tells us here in verses 13 and 14. And though the descendants of Adam were not guilty of transgression by violating a direct command of God, they were still guilty. Paul said, sin was in the world. Men acted against the light of creation and the conscience, and since they had no objective, no specific law, they were not held accountable to God as transgressors. But God judges man on the basis of the light that's been given to him. And by coming in of the law, spiritual light to man increased, which meant that he knew right from wrong in a clearer way. If we can illustrate it this way, God's standards are not man's standards. What men may permit may be prohibited by God. Now most, if not all states, have some form of legalized gambling, unfortunately. Uh, There are some states where it may not be legal. But if I gamble in a state where it's legal, I would not be breaking the law. I would not be doing anything wrong, right? Wrong. Because that's against God's moral law. You see, you better not be gambling, preacher. You better be looking for another place to work. You see, it may be legal in a a state to do it, but it's not legal for God. God's law is given to expose sin, to make sin stand out so it's exceedingly sinful. And men have reached the place where they're denying sin as being sin, and so God gave them a law which exposed sin in its true colors. Adam sinned against a specific commandment. We read here, Nevertheless, death reigned from 
Adam to Moses. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or the likeness or in the same way of Adam's transgression. God said to Adam, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam sinned against a specific command. However, from the time of Adam until Moses, now what was Moses? He was the lawgiver. And there were no other specific commandments. But death reigned. Why? Because the the reason is that men were sinners by nature and sin, even though it was against less light, perhaps, than Adam had. For by their sinful tendencies and deeds, they revealed that they were separated from God through Adam's fall. And the fact is that they all died. They all died physically. And he died. And he died. And he died. You read it there in Genesis chapter 5. Death, spiritual and physical, reigned like a tyrant over them. So we have the reigning power of death. Then we have the despotic rule of death. The despotic rule. Sin is presented here as an exercising cruel power over men. Death and sin are related. Those who did not receive God's special revelation, the law, were still under the power of death through their sin. And those who received special revelation were guilty because they failed to obey God. Now, you go down to verse 20, down to the end of the chapter here, verse 20 and 21. It says, Moreover, the law entered, and the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the law of Moses did not cause sin or guilt, but it showed man exactly what sin was, and it increased man's responsibility. On one hand, we might argue that the law actually had the effect of making man more sinful because of the presence of a particular law, often Stimulate sin by arousing a spirit of rebellion. Isn't that the way it often is? Tell a child not to do something, what do they do? They do it. They go right ahead and they do it anyway. Why? It's natural. It comes natural. And yet on the other hand, the law simply revealed more fully the responsibility the principle of sin which was already present in the world, preparing men for the good news of deliverance from the power and penalty. So we have the first Adam, and that is ruination. Then we have the last Adam, redemption. And there are three great contrasts that are mentioned here. And for me, they kind of untangle some, some verses and they help me make... Uh, help make it clear to me. I don't know if it makes it clear to you, but it helps me to understand it. And I want to share them with you. Again, I do not say these verses comprise the central theme. Uh, I, I do want to say they comprise the central theme of the book. Everything to this point has been working toward this, and everything after this point works away from this. But the whole point is that Adam failed, Christ prevailed. We were lost in Adam. But we get back much more. And so I've illustrated it with a contrast. That's what we have here. 
white and black. That's, that's, is that as contrast as you can get? I think so. So we have three contrasts. Number one, two people are contrasted. So to help us see this clear, we might, it might be helpful to know there are 40 billion plus people who've lived in this world. God looks at all of humanity. He sees us uh, in the relationship to the only two men, Adam and Jesus. And that's the essence of Romans chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. Now, we've read verses 20 and 21, but look at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if we through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses and to justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. I'll stop there for the moment, but you see Adam did something back in the Garden of Eden that affected the entire human race. Jesus also did something on the cross that affected the, the whole of humanity. And so it really doesn't matter if you know who Daniel is. It doesn't matter if you know about Moses or Mesopotamia or Babylon or the Medes or the Persians. It doesn't matter how much you know about the intricate history of the Bible. All these things are important in their place, and you should take time to learn them. And yet, to get a grasp of the whole Bible, just remember, it all boils down to two men, Adam and Jesus. You also need to know that you are in one or the other. To be in Adam is to be a partaker of all his gifts to humanity. To be in Christ is to be a partaker in all that he had to give. And it's important that the difference between these two men and their contributions to the human race. Paul reveals them in these verses. Oops. We see, first of all, Adam the sinner. And verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So Adam was disobedient. This means Adam went against the command of God, committed sin. Verse 15 tells us that Adam committed an offense. That is, he crossed a line that God had drawn. So you have Adam the sinner, but you also have Jesus the Savior. Because in the second half of verse 19 it says, So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. While Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed the Father, gave his life a ransom for sin. And this is made clear also in other passages of Scripture. We won't go to in Philippians 2 and Revelation 22. But the contrast here between the first Adam and the second Adam should not be missed. You look, go back to verse 15. And you find two words that are very important. They are much more. Jesus did much more than Adam did. Adam sinned, he brought death, but Jesus died one death and brought life, the possibility of life to all. 
So we have two people contrasted. Secondly, we have two programs contrasted. There is the program of judgment and death. Verse 15 says, uh, because of Adam's sin, many be dead. It's also there in verses 16 through 18. Paul tells us that because Adam sinned, every man is doomed to die. The bottom line is that the end, of result, end result of Adam's trespass in the garden is eternity in hell for all men. So this is the program that all men are under in their natural state. But there's also the program or the justice justification in life. In these same verses, Jesus offers a different program. While the sin of Adam brings death, devastation, and damnation, the gift of Jesus Christ brings life, liberty, and luxury. What a difference Jesus makes. In Adam, we are judged. In Christ, we are justified. In Adam, we die. In Jesus, we live. In Adam, we face the wrath of God. In Jesus, we enjoy the love of God. In Adam, we burn in Christ we reign. In Adam we are servants of sin. In Christ we are the sons of God. What a wonderful contrast. You look down in verse 20 again. Moreover, the sin or the law entered and the offense might abound. It tells us that sin abounded. It means to abound in abundance. And yet, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That means to abound above measure. It's actually two different words there. One means to abound in abundance, and the other one means to abound above measure, to overflow. Sin, certainly sin is a problem. And so we have two people Contrasted. Two programs contrasted. And thirdly, two possibilities are contrasted. One is condemnation. Verse 21, that is, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto the eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 21 talks about condemnation. Verse 21, the second part, talks about conversion. There is the possibility of salvation. If a lost sinner will simply trust Jesus Christ by faith, he'll be saved and justified by the blood of the Lamb. And so we have a choice. The truth that sin and salvation are bound together in the first Adam and the last Adam is perfectly understandable when we recognize the obvious fact that men are a corporate unity. We do not live alone. Each is affected by what others do. Either we like it or not. The commonality of the human race cannot be denied. The representative principle is not unfair. God has been just. He gave us two representatives and he gave us a choice. Either you choose death or you can choose life. Don't blame anyone else. Don't blame if you reject the gift of, of life and you go to hell, then don't blame Adam. Don't blame God. Don't blame Jesus Christ. Don't blame the church. Don't blame the preacher. Blame no one but yourself. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful choice. And I thank you, Lord, that many and not most of all those here this afternoon have probably made the right choice. But Lord, help us to realize that uh, this is a very important choice to make. And if there's someone here that has not made this choice and and uh, chosen life over death, that they may do that before it's too late. We do think of our lost family members and our lost uh, friends and neighbors. And thank you, Lord, that you've provided salvation. And we pray, Lord, you'll bless as we continue to be a testimony before others. They might see clearly the choice that we've made. And we pray, Lord, that they'll make the choice as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with number 346.